And Susan, where's Susan? Thank you so much for that beautiful meditation music. It is always a pleasure to have you with us on a Sunday morning. Well, this is the first Sunday of March, and so we begin our exploration this month of liberation, the theme of liberation. And as always, we will explore it over those Sundays in different ways. Next week, we will welcome a guest here, Eugene Perrier, an activist in D.C. and the author of the book Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. And he'll talk about liberation from a social justice viewpoint. The next Sunday is our All Music Sunday, and we'll be hearing the music of liberation from many movements over time. And, um, and then the final Sunday in March, I'll be talking about the, the challenge of looking at both individual freedom and collective liberation. And I'll look at that from a standpoint of a community setting like ours and also the larger political setting that we find ourselves in. I am looking forward to that one in particular, and I will let you know the day after if I manage to live up to the concept that I have set for myself there. Today, though, we are talking about personal liberation, about what it means for us to be truly free, our very selves. For whatever reason, as I've been thinking about liberation and about freedom and being free, the image that has come to mind is from the movie Aladdin. You might have seen it. It was kind of, um, I, was, I was a little old but still watching Disney movies myself when Aladdin came out, I think, if I've got the time right. And I've certainly seen it again with my children. And so you might remember that one of the key figures is the genie who is played by Robin Williams in the film. And he does a, he does a fabulous, kind of masterful job. Um, But what I'm thinking of most of all is this scene toward the beginning of the movie, right when Aladdin has met the genie, and uh, he's trying to figure out what he should wish for. And so he asks the genie, well, genie, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? You know, genie's been around for 20,000 some years, probably has some good ideas. And, um, And so the response from the genie is, oh, to be free. Not to have to say, poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? (laughs) To be my own master. Such a thing would be greater than all the magic and all the treasures in all the world. There's a double poignancy in those words, I think, especially now as we reflect back on them. There's a piece there, of course, that's immediately applicable to the actual, literal experience of enslavement, an experience that is part of America's history for the majority of our history, and certainly part of the reality now in our world context and even still in America in places. The ways that oppressive systems continue to work either literally or not quite literally all, but to enslave or trap people. And that's a deeply important issue one will talk about more as the month unfolds. But today, the piece that strikes me about that scene is the much more personal one. The particular emotional experience of being stuck, of being trapped. 
Of course, as I think back on that scene from Aladdin and Robin Williams' beautiful portrayal of the genie trapped inside his little lamp, I think of the struggles that Robin Williams himself experienced over his lifetime, struggles with addiction and then with depression, and finally, perhaps, as his widow has shared, with dementia. I think about the experiences that we have being stuck, being trapped. Not perhaps in quite the same way, but I imagine all of us have had that experience of being stuck in a place we no longer want to be, stuck in a kind of self that no longer calls to us. We have, of course, our new painting for the month. I hope you had a chance to look at it as you came in, and I welcome you to do so more. Uh, Barry sends me these um, paintings by email a couple of days before the Sunday each week, and um, and it's now just routine, you know. Oh, here's another amazing painting done by our member, Barry Galef. Not only beautiful to look at, but every single piece is deeply symbolic and refers to world traditions uh, in every in every little element, so um, so it's you know, oh ho hum, there it is again. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. He's gotten Buddhism in there too. So, so you can read the artist statement, which is in your your program this Sunday, um, and also attached to the bottom of the painting. But um, Barry has included birds as one of the symbols of liberation in this painting, and again because you know. That's just the way Barry does it. Every bird is chosen, so there's an owl for our sort of freedom of thought and uh, an eagle for our freedom of um, government. And, um, and then the peacock, the pigeon. The, you know, Barry never said exactly what the, where's Barry, what the pigeon stands for. It's like the freedom to fly in the city free. <laughs> but, um, but I love the pigeon, actually. I think it's my favorite of the birds. Um, but, but there, too, is, um, is the peacock, and he notes that the peacock has a special symbolism both in Buddhism and in the Christian tradition. So I encourage you to read the artist statement and to read more about, um, about what went into Barry's thinking with this painting. It speaks to me, though, of the importance of liberation in the next couple of months for many of our siblings in different religious traditions. Several of them will be um, celebrating holidays around the theme of liberation. Coming up in in April um, is Passover, celebrated within the Jewish tradition, which honors both the escape from literal enslavement, freedom from enslavement of the Jewish people out of Egypt through the Exodus story, but also has come to be about freedom of religion, the freedom to practice Purim, which comes just before um, before Passover this year. All of these things, I know particularly the dates because my, my younger daughter goes to a Jewish preschool, and it's really important to know when school will be closed. So, um, so Purim is coming up pretty soon, actually. Purim is also a story about freedom of religion, the freedom to practice safely a minority religion within a larger uh, empire. At the end of this month is the holiday of Easter in the Christian tradition, which celebrates freedom from death, but also the larger Christian narrative, which includes in it freedom from empire, resistance to empire, 
and freedom from being ostracized, the Jesus message of radical love and inclusion. That, too, is a story of liberation. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the peacock in our painting has special symbolism in Buddhism. We spoke a couple of weeks ago together as we looked at our February theme of desire about, um, about suffering in Buddhism. And I think, I think the liberation that we often think of in the Buddhist tradition is freedom from that suffering, freedom from our normal human state and experience of great suffering. When we talked about desire It's really thirst or greed almost within the Buddhist tradition as it should be properly um, translated as the root of all suffering, that thirst for something more, the continual yearning for what is not. Liberation then can be seen as the absence of that thirst, a resting in the presence of what is. And so, for me, thinking about liberation in our own tradition, about emotional and personal liberation, begins with a sense of awareness. So I want to invite you into another time, just a brief time of meditation. I want to bring you back into that space, if you will, with me. And we'll do that a few times through our platform today. Settle in, stay in that space of meditation. Remember back as Ellen asked you to notice what you were carrying with you. To notice what was present for you today. Call your mind back further still to our opening song. Is it peace within you in this moment? Or pain? Is it joy or tears? Or some combination of those things? Reach deeper now for just a moment and see if you can find what lies beneath the competing emotions, the competing feelings that we all hold within us. And take a breath. To me, the first step of personal liberation, oh, I need to bring you out of that, sorry. Come back into the room. There we go. You know, honestly, you can stay there the whole time if you want to. It's a pretty, like, low-key platform. So if you want to just keep your feet on the floor and yourself in the chair, that'll be good. I'll use that soothing voice the whole time. The first step of personal liberation, I think, in many ways, is to be honest with ourselves about all that we carry. To be fully present to what we know, to what we hold within us and what holds us. It's that what holds us that's really the key part, I think. That's the trick. 
When I was in seminary, you know, seminary is not really famous for, like, its drinking games or anything. (laughs) And so instead, we have um, games based on biblical principles. Um, And so one of the um, pastimes, I guess, in seminary is um, to try to name the seven deadly sins uh, to yourself silently. So don't say them yet because you'll ruin it. And, um, and then what they say is, you know, it's really hard. Seven is a lot of things to remember. And so the one that you can't remember is the one that you most fully inhabit yourself. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what they do in seminary. You should go. It's fun. I want to give you a chance to meditate on that now for a moment. You don't really need to be in a deep place of meditation for this, although you can be. But just see if, see if you can... Name them to yourself, if that's a list you're at all familiar with, and then I'll quiz you. Do you know any of them? (laughs) Who knows some? What? Greed? Lust? Envy? Good. Sloth? Gluttony? Wrath? Pride. Yeah, I always get pride last. Right. Yes, you guys got it. Seven. That's right. I like that. I like to... Do you want me to say them again? Yes. Yes. So um, they're, they're really called the seven cardinal sins, you know, and they're from different places in the Bible. So there's a whole interesting conversation to be had about their provenance and how they came to have such, um, such a codified experience within kind of the Western imagination. We're not going to have that platform right now, but it's really interesting. Let me know. We can do a class on it. Um, but the seven, uh, the seven cardinal sins are generally known as lust, greed, sloth, gluttony, pride, wrath, and envy. Now, here's the thing about those seven deadly sins. We don't tend to go in that much for deadly sins in ethical culture. Did I just say there were 10 deadly sins? No, I didn't misspeak. Did I? That's funny. No, seven. There's seven. 10 things you're supposed to do. Anyway, we don't go in that much for deadly sins. In fact, there's a whole nother conversation to be had, which we've had before, but we can do it again about, um, about the word sin and what it means. And, you know, that's also a good platform. Um, but here's the thing in terms of liberation for me. Those, those seven sins aren't in and of themselves necessarily so terrible until it's not you that holds them, but they that hold you. Lust, for instance. Lust is kind of nice, frankly. I know that while I was away, you all heard from Melissa Sinclair, our director of lifelong learning, about desire and the importance of sexual desire and talking about it and being open about the reality of sexual desire in our lives. So I am not trying to knock lust. It can be a good thing to hold lust. It's not so good when lust holds you. And I think for each of those sins, you can see the way that you can hold a little bit of it in your heart. I really like sloth, you know? (laughs) That is like a good quality sometimes to be slothful. 
and you can see the time when it holds you. I think the challenge with not having our own list of seven deadly sins is that we gloss over sometimes those challenging pieces of ourselves, the things that end up holding us, trapping us within them. There's a spiritual practice that comes actually from the Puritan tradition. You know, the Puritans, the poor Puritans, got such a bad name. You know, we think about their, like, little buckly shoes and the scarlet letter. They were really not into lust, actually, probably at all. But, um, but, but in reality, they had a number of practices that, that might appeal to us now, to we as ethical culturists. One of those was at the end of the day to stop and take stock of how we did that day. To take a moment to review the actions of the day that had just passed and to notice the places when we feel proud of how we were, the places when we felt sad or hurt, and the places when we wished we could have done better. I don't know about you, but there is always a place in my day that I wish I could have done better. And that practice of noticing each day how the day went, and then setting an intention for the day ahead. How might I be different in the next day? How might I be able to move in the world more free from that which has trapped me today? From whatever sin, whatever wrong, whatever misstep has had its hold on me today? I like that framework as I think about liberation, as I try to imagine what it is that I might want to be liberated from. Because there is always something, isn't there? Always something in a day or a week or a month, something in a lifetime that we might want to be liberated from. Mine have ranged over time. I've wanted to be liberated from lots of different kinds of fears. I've shared with some of you the fear of driving on the beltway, which I was liberated from because I decided one day I just couldn't go through Bethesda traffic. That was like a moment of big liberation. You know, the beltway was better than traffic in Bethesda. I've wanted to be liberated from other kinds of fear, to be liberated from shame around my body. Most of the times these days, I want to be liberated from egotism. This is a, I don't know if it's a hard job or a good job for someone who leans toward egotism. (laughs) It's certainly a successful job for someone who does. I get so much wonderful praise and, and, and responsiveness from you all. And there are positives to egotism, you know, to competitiveness. It's the sin of envy there, I think, at the root of it. That was the one I couldn't remember this morning. I had to look it up on Wikipedia. There are positives there. I work hard. I seek to emulate people I admire so that I can be more like them. But of course, there's the part that holds me that I want to get free of, you know, the part that 
that makes everything about other people's approval. The part that, that needs to be boosted up, and then when something goes wrong or someone doesn't like something, it's hard to respond. That's the part that holds me, that I seek to be liberated from, and that I can just begin to imagine the self on the other side of it. Perhaps you have something like that, too, that you carry around with you, that you whisper to yourself, or that you would notice if you checked your day the way the Puritans did. It might be old anger or hurts from long ago, the ones that you hold on to but that hold you too. I give you a moment again to just pause to see first if you can identify what that might be for you. And to imagine what it might look like on the other side. What if you could break free from that which holds you? What if you could liberate yourself? And now as we come back, I think that I think that one of the things that tends to hold us most, many of us, is a sense of of anger. I think about forgiveness and how hard that can be to do. And the way that often we see forgiveness as being about the object forgiven, you know, that uh, that forgiveness is for the person we are forgiving. Yes, I'll forgive you. Whereas in reality, so often it is an act of personal liberation, forgiveness, Letting go of that which holds us, acknowledging the reality of the past, but denying it its ability to have a future claim on who we are, a liberation for ourselves. And then I think, I often hear this when we talk about forgiveness, folks will say, well, you know, I'd like to be forgiving, but I can't just forget what's happened to me. I don't know if you feel that way sometimes, and I understand it myself. I certainly feel that way. And I think, I think it sets up a, a false dichotomy or a false expectation as though we would forget somehow. I've not met the person who actually forgets the past, really, even when they forgive. A good image for me comes from the practice of tattooing over scars, You might have seen some of those images. There are some really famous ones. There's a a beautiful image of a woman who had a mastectomy and then had a tree tattoo done right over her scar on her chest. But there are many others. I just read about a tattoo artist who offers for free her services to um, people who have been victims of domestic violence, which left them with scarring or disfigurement, offering tattoos to, to open up and, and reclaim that space in their body. To me, that idea of tattoos over scars, you know, the scar doesn't go away. You don't forget 
what's there. It's part of the map of your body. But you've gotten the chance to add to the map, too. To draw something new in its place. That, to me, is what liberation can look like for us. Not an erasure or a forgetting, but moving past the holding on. Moving to the newness. To me, then, liberation becomes not just about what we want to be free from, that peace that holds us, but what we want to be free for. The thing that's so arresting, so beautiful about that picture of the woman with the tree tattoo is not necessarily the tattoo. It's not her body at all. It's her pose. It's her face, her being, her liberated self celebrating what will come. What do you want to be free for? The answer to that, I think, is found in a return to the broader arc of liberation. One could wonder, how does all of this personal liberation, a liberation from personal fear or from shame, a liberation from the anger that might hold us a liberation from envy, how does all of that relate to the broader liberation that we seek? Liberation of whole peoples from oppressive systems, liberation of our world, of our earth from pollution and degradation. Ethical culture, after all, the movement that we are part of, was created intentionally as a shift from self-culture, from sort of the idea of the time that our work was to be continually improving ourselves personally until we were the very best we could be. Ethical culture said instead, no, our work is much bigger than that. Our work is to improve the world so that the world might be the best that it could be. So how does all of this self-liberation fit into that? Where where do we get off doing so much navel-gazing? More and more activist movements recognize the importance of self-care, self-love, The idea that we are unable, in fact, to to act for justice in the world as effectively if we ourselves are trapped. If whatever it is that holds us, holds us so tightly that we cannot act, cannot move as much as we would like. Then, too, our own experience of personal entrapment is often related to those societal oppressions that we seek to change. Even my own battles with envy, with egotism, are related, I know, to the fact that some part of me has bought into the narrative that there isn't enough for everyone, that I have to make sure I get my own. Each of those things that hold us are part of a system of thinking, part of a way that our world is shaped. In liberating ourselves from our own entrapment, we are able to be present to the liberation of the world, to liberate the world to be what we imagine, what we envision, what we dream about, a world that is free 
indeed.